Hello, Greyhounds. Welcome to Ted Lasso is Life, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Dwall. I'm joined by my marvelous co-host, Chrisanne Morgan. Hey, all you Greyhounds. And today we're here to talk about Season 3, Episode 9, The Locker Room au Full. Having won eight in a row, Richmond stays hot, but Isaac is still giving Colin the cold shoulder. Rebecca gets Roy to open up, while Nate turns down Rupert's request. Well, right off the bat, Kevin, I think it was a great episode and it feels like we're back on track because I feel like all the other subplots that they were giving us have finally been wrapped up, including Jack and Kaylee's breakup. But I really loved this episode. It just felt so solid and it felt like we really had all of the comedy that I love so much about Ted Lasso. What did you think? Did you like it? Did you laugh? Did you cry? What, what are your thoughts? There was a lot of fucking yelling this episode. There was some yelling. It's very true. But I feel like it was all in service to the storyline and it didn't bother me. It didn't stick out to me as being odd. I mean, I felt like it fit in the story that they were telling. The one thing that was noticeable to me, though, that did stick out was the fact that they're focusing less on Ted. And I had, I've been reading a couple of reviews on the internet about how they're kind of setting the team up to move on without Ted. And it kind of does feel that way to me a little bit. Did it seem that way to you too? The first time I watched it, it was like, whatever the brain equivalent of tip on your tongue is, but having seen it again, there were a lot of parallels between Roy and Ted. Meaning the way that Roy stepped up? Yeah, like when Roy was doing his press conference, it was reminiscent of Ted's first one. And then when he went to calm down Isaac, that was similar to how Ted calmed down Roy himself when he was being brunette Oster the Grouch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ted's effect is definitely felt everywhere. And pretty soon it's going to be the lasso effect instead of the Roy Kent effect because Roy will take over. I mean, that's what a lot of people on the internet seem to be thinking. Well, then that means the lasso effect is leading to the Roy Kent effect. That's true. That's true. The one thing I'm also a little, I wouldn't say concerned about, but there's a variety interview and we can link it in the show notes that the whole cast did. And Jason said as kind of a joke under duress, okay, okay, I'll do season four. And then in Brett Goldstein's interview on Jimmy Kimmel, which we can also link in the show notes, Brett talked about their last day of filming and how Jason made a speech and everyone was crying. So it really does seem like they've wrapped it up and they're done. But then I also heard another thing <laughs> that said that once they get done with the whole season, uh, Jason is quoted as saying, then we'll figure out what we're going to do. So I don't know if they've made the decision about what's happening. I think he wants everybody to watch the entirety of season three and then kind of let them know if we want more. That's the gist that I got from what I've been reading on the internet and these interviews. Have you heard any of that, Kevin? No. Well, I'm breaking the news, breaking the scoop here. I'm wondering what they're going to do, or if I'm just hopeful that they'll hear us and give us another. Well, as I joked on my most recent Instagram post, I need a season four to get to 100K. Come on, everybody. Let's get Kevin to 100K over on Ted Lasso's life. Since we have another French-inspired title, off to drop some French here. I know it's probably blasé to talk about the next episode when we barely touched on this one yet, but if you've seen the description for episode 10, how is Edwin and Khufu back? How do we have time for that? It's very interesting to me that they're bringing him. I mean, I love Sam Richardson, 
But yeah, that's another interesting little side journey that I hope doesn't take away from the rest of what we want to see. Getting to this episode, the locker room afal. Such a great Easter egg that they built into the title for us, and it has this deeper meaning. And if any of you are familiar with La Caja Fall, you know. And if you don't know, we are going to break it down for you. So La Locker Room of Fall is a tribute to the musical, which was based on a French play from 1973 of the same name. But the musical, it tells a story of a gay couple, Albin and Georges, who own a drag club in which Albin performs. When their son becomes engaged to the daughter of a very conservative politician, they use Albin's drag in an attempt to portray themselves as a straight couple. La Caja Fall broke barriers. It was groundbreaking and pathfinding for gay representation because it was the first Broadway musical to center around a gay couple. They've won Tony Awards and they won all kinds of awards, including Best Revival. And it was so popular, they even remade it. They made a movie called The Birdcage, starring Nathan Lane and Robin Williams. The show has such an important place in the history of LGBTQIA representation in the media. And its final act, I Am What I Am, is considered a gay anthem. It's been recorded a million times. Gloria Gaynor did a recording of it. And it was just such a great homage to the show that they used it in this episode because Colin's storyline is also pretty groundbreaking in the context of Premier League football. So it was no surprise to me and a perfect ending that they used I Am What I Am at the end of the episode because it just fits. And the character Albin in the show actually sings it as an act of defiance that he's proclaiming that he's proud of who he is and he won't change. So we get that with Colin's journey. The lyrics are also amazing. I'm happy to, to post the lyrics in the show notes as well so that you can see them. And I loved it so much. I mean, the opening scene with all of the players playing so brilliantly from the show's overture, I thought that was fantastic too. Are you familiar with the show, Kevin? I'm not. That's why I'm glad you're telling me and some of the audience what it means. I thought it was just really lovely and we really wanted to talk about it because in the history of Ted Lasso, there's been so much mention and so much tribute to musical theater. And I love that this is a part of the show because I am a musical theater nerd. So how about that Colin arc? What'd you think? How did you think about the whole coming out bit? Was it what you expected? I feel like at this point, y'all are probably going to nickname me Kevin the Critic because I had a few issues about it. Tell me. Tell me what your issues were. Well, I guess for me, the biggest thing is technically we didn't even really get to see the exact moment because then they cut away to Isaac and Roy in the boot room. And that, for me, follows a unfavorable trend of, for some reason, hiding some of the big moments this season. Some people try to justify Shandy's storyline by saying, oh, it was to help Keely become a boss-ass bitch, but we didn't even see that happen either. It was behind closed doors, and then Shandy just storms out and then starts going crazy at everyone. And then here, with Colin coming out, we see him say, it's not Isaac, but we don't actually see him say, it's me. What's the purpose of hiding these important moments from us? I think it's a disservice to both the characters and the actors, because obviously it's a really dramatic moment, and then it's not captured on camera for like Emmy purposes. And then in terms of character development, yeah, technically we know what happens, but it's not the same as actually seeing it happen. 
Well, because we already know as the audience that Colin is gay, I didn't miss that moment myself, right? Like I wasn't upset because we already know. And seeing him tell the team wouldn't really have made that much more of an impact to me because we saw everybody finding out. And I feel like focusing on their reactions to learning the news was a little bit more important to me. But I get it. I understand where you're coming from for sure. Well, like another counterpoint I have that is, for some reason, this episode was quote unquote only 44 minutes, which is fucking long for a comedy. But when you look at the past few episodes, when Sunflower was like over an hour and then had like 50-ish minutes for the previous other episodes, it would have taken like an extra half minute maybe, which would still make it a lot shorter than the previous episode. So I don't get why they just started cutting here in terms of time. I mean, I will definitely fight because I always want more Ted Lasso. It was interesting that they only gave us 44 minutes, especially since the past few episodes have been so long. I wasn't mad about how they told the Colin story. I know I've read all over the internet that it was treacly and it was too sweet. And, you know, of course, they, you know, they're going to be cool about it. And you know what? Of course, they're going to be cool about it because of all of those imperceptible moments that we talked about last week where Ted has built this culture of kindness and acceptance and love. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we definitely see conflict in the show. There's definitely conflict. It's not that it's devoid of conflict or avoiding conflict. It's just not based on petty conflict. Does that make sense? So you were saying that some people felt that it resolved too easily, the conflict between Colin and Isaac? I did read that. And I would agree with them. I think I mentioned this maybe last week, but since we have more context this week to work with, when Colin says, oh, I was 99% sure that you support me just that 1%, in episode 451, when Richard is saying, The way that moves on the pitch, like a panther. So sexy, huh? And then Isaac's like, <laughs> Sound a bit gay, bro. If I was Colin, that would make me worry a lot more than one fucking percent. And that would actually make me pretty mad that he's making homophobic jokes, but seemed to resolve pretty easily. You know, I'm not a fan of conflict just for conflict's sake to any sort of arbitrary rule that you have to have a certain amount of conflict. It felt organic and not forced to me. And I do feel like the timeline itself, if you really think about the timeline of the episode, it it wasn't all happening just in one day or one moment, even though it came at us in only 44 minutes and unfolded in 44 minutes. Because they're such good friends, even though Isaac is making, you know, the normal prescribed homophobic jokes because of the way that being gay is considered in the Premier League. It didn't surprise me, but also I loved when they were talking that it was about him and it was about Colin's fear. He took it right back and put it on himself because Isaac made it about himself. Like, why wasn't I a good enough friend for you to tell? What was it about me that made you not want to tell me this truth? And when you think about it in the terms of you know, you can't tell anybody how to come out. You just, you can't do it. You, you have to leave them do it in a space that they're comfortable doing it. And even if it might hurt as a friend to be lied to, you have to know that much more vulnerable person is the person coming out. And so I liked that they explained it that way. And I liked that that was Colin's reasoning that that 1% made him so fearful to lose his friend 
that he was afraid to say something about it. So that made a lot of sense to me. You know, they could have dragged it out and and made it a longer conflict between Colin and Isaac, but I appreciate that they didn't. Obviously, they played poorly when they were at odds with one another and you know, they were both completely distracted because you don't have your best buddy in the world there to kind of have your back and having that kind of connection like they do. It was hard on them both. So I'm glad it's resolved. I'm glad that they're buddies again. Not that they ever stopped being buddies. Isaac just needed a little bit of time to process. And Roy may have speeded that up because of his newfound realization about dealing with the things that you need to deal with so it doesn't destroy things that you care about. That was really long-winded. What's new there? I'm getting roasted, y'all. I feel like Richard, who got totally roasted this episode. So to what you said about dragging things out, I'm not saying that they had to drag things out, so to speak, but just like at a bare minimum, they could have mentioned that. Colin saying, oh, like, quote-unquote jokes like that, that hurts me. That's all I'm asking for. I'm not saying, oh, it should have been like three, four episodes longer. I'm not saying that. Just the conversation they had at the end, they could have had it there. That's what I'm saying. Maybe they'll still talk about it in future episodes. Who knows? But hopefully Colin knows that it's just that locker room talk. You know, I mean, I'm not excusing it by any stretch of the imagination. I've just never been a professional athlete where being different is so reviled. So I would imagine that it's kind of de rigueur. Sounds like we're going full out French today. We are going full out French today. Yes, indeed. Thank you for calling that out. So another thing with the runtime. They didn't show us the inspirational second half that Colin had either after the whole halftime talk. We just saw him celebrate and have to imagine what actually happened, which again goes back to the 44-minute runtime. It's like 10, 15 minutes less than the past few episodes. And why did they show football for the training and the first half when they didn't score, but then arguably the most important football part, they don't show any of that. I know. And that reminds me of what they did at Everton in season one. They didn't show us that Roy, you know, was so moved by being angry and they didn't show us the second half with Colin. I was bummed about that because I do so love it when they show us the lads playing soccer. I really enjoy that. I would like more actual football. Sorry to kind of jump around between characters, but Kiwi firing Shandy behind closed doors as like an example of them not showing us things. How did you feel about that scene and situation? didn't bother me. I mean, I I wasn't a giant fan of the whole Shandy storyline. So there really wasn't a way they could make me like it any better. So I didn't think about it in terms of being upset that we didn't get to see Keely firing Shandy and then Shandy unleashing her inner Edwin Akufu. Partially because I think the lamb only had droppings in the boardroom, not every single room of the office. And then the lamb didn't come back and burn it all down to ash. So yeah, that's true. As much as I also didn't like the Shandy storyline, I'll begrudgingly give them credit for how they foreshadowed the lamb in the boardroom because, of course, in the very first episode, when she meets Keely at the photo shoot, there's the lamb there and it had droppings. And then when she has her whole tirade, she calls everyone a bunch of sheep. I'll give them that. But how about that speech that Ted gave, getting back to the Colin situation, the Colin of it all? But did he really compare being a gay man to the Denver Broncos? That clapback was so perfect. I was like, really, Ted? But the main point and the the loving thing that Ted acknowledged that they do care and they care that he's gay because it's a part of him and he doesn't have to deal with it on his own anymore. He's not alone. So I did enjoy that, even though I think Ted was just just a little tiny bit tone deaf, but 
that's Ted for you in a way, right? There was actually a lot of funny in the coming out scene. I loved Colin and Trent's conversation about it and Colin telling Trent that he would have really liked for the entire team to confess that they were gay and then go on Oprah's magazine. I thought that was funny. Billy Harris's comedic timing is really brilliant. He's such a talented guy. And I thought that his moments were just wonderful. He was really great. I would, I would buy that Oprah magazine. And how about everyone kind of doing the Simpsons meme where everyone's looking back at Jamie waiting for him to answer? I loved how Phil Dunster played that. He was so funny. First, when he was saying after the, the heckler in the stands had said the thing and they were finding out what was said, Phil's line read of that was amazing. And then his saying that he was so flattered for being thought of as gay. I thought that was great too. I love that Phil Dunster. So although I didn't really love this conclusion of Colin's coming out storyline, I will say that the scene at the end with him and Isaac playing video games was pretty much perfect, especially when consider a guy like Isaac's clearly not really into sharing his feelings. That's probably the best vehicle, video games, that they could have done that with. It really was such a beautiful scene. Their banter was great. And the whole, I love you, boyo, you can't say it, can you? And Isaac saying, no, but you do know I do, right? Oh, pull down the heartstrings. I definitely cried through that scene because I just thought it was so sweet. Also, because of the music, there was a song that they used in a previous scene that came over into the Colin and Isaac scene. And the lyric is, I hope I find somebody who loves me for all that I am. And it was just so beautifully dovetailed into the Colin and Isaac scene and watching them just be unconditionally good friends in all of the questions. The fittest guy on the team is Bumbercatch. So good. I'm wondering if the scarf Bumbercatch gave him changed his mind. Definitely possible. So who knew that Roy was going to be the calm voice of reason in the midst of all this chaos? The man who used to headbutt his way through problems. So definitely not a fan of George, but he did have quite the line when he said that Isaac made Roy Kent look like Bambi. My dislike of George was so reinforced seeing him as the commentator on Saturday Sports. I just, he's such a twat and he will ever be a twat in my mind. and. George just has no ability to grasp nuance and different levels. I always feel like somebody who doesn't recognize the gray areas in life is just kind of missing a lot. And I think George should just keep his little lip zipped because he doesn't add a lot to the conversation other than negativity at all times. <laughs> but it was funny. Although technically without Rebecca, Roy might not have been the voice of reason this episode. I know. Boy, Rebecca calling him to the mat was so powerful. And it was just exactly what he needed. And holy hell, was she, the subtext about his relationship ending with Keely was so there. I mean, that was really what that was about, in my mind anyway. Speaking of minds, anyone else have a rom-com mind like me? Because when Rebecca asked, what do you want, Roy? I was really, really hoping he said Keely. Anyone else? I wish that he had said that as well. But then Rebecca doubled down and called him out even more when he said, I just want to be left alone, because clearly he doesn't want to be left alone. He wants his Keely back. And then even from just a work point of view, if he wanted to be left alone, he wouldn't be fucking coaching, would he? Exactly. Hannah Waddingham can do no wrong. I loved the playfulness. I loved that their friendship is so solid that they were so real with one another. And then he actually really took in what she said to him. 
you know, he heard her and it caused that realization to happen. And he acts out of this different place because of his realization. And he, we get to see him evolve almost in real time. Maybe not even evolve, but at least just unregressed to kind of take inspo from Ted's unrelegated. He unregressed all of his non-development this season. Yeah, he didn't go backwards. And the way that he sat with Isaac was so gentle and so wise, not yelling at him and just telling him that he needed to fix what was really bothering him so that it didn't destroy whatever it is that he cares about for real. I mean, that's good wisdom for anybody walking around on the planet in my book, because we do act out of places that aren't actually what we're being triggered by in the moment. And of course, Will was there in the boot room. Will strikes again. And Cola was amazing as well. I mean, we know he's going to toss chairs at televisions and he's going to go defend the people that he cares about. I don't hate that that's the way that he reacted because standing up for the people that you love is, is such an underrated thing, I think. So Roy stepping into Ted's shoes and walking into the press room to give the press conference that he avoided giving earlier in the episode was beautiful and stunning. I mean, he told a completely Ted Lasso story, the way it was structured, the way that he talked about things. It reminded me of Goodbye Earl, Ted's talk about Earl getting killed and about how the dog was and bringing up that story. And Roy's sense of compassion for what people are going through was such a lovely way to kind of tie up that part of the storyline and tie up that part of what Isaac was going through and how to really understand when people react in ways that are unexpected or hostile. I'm glad they left it in Roy's hands because as we're seeing deeper into Roy's heart and mind, there's a lot more in there and it's finally getting to come out. I very much enjoyed his exchange with Marcus. I prefer you to old Trent. Do you think he's joking actually for real when he says that? Oh, I think he's 100% for real. I also enjoyed all of his names, his nicknames for the different members of the press. Who do you think Roy was referring to when he said, you, Demon Goblin? Probably Ernie Lowndes, right? Oh, yeah, for sure Ernie Lowndes is the Goblin King because he's such a wanker. Indeed. And he's not even my wanker of the week. Another great moment with Roy was at the beginning when Rebecca tells him to do the press conference and Keeley's there as well. But, big, big but here. It also made me realize how much Roy has been wasted this season. We had more development for Roy in one fucking episode than this entire season overall. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's really what we talked about last week, too, is that they spent so much time on these subplots. And subpar characters that they didn't give us a lot of the development that they really want. And if it's the last three episodes, come on. We were able to have a fun scene with Roar and Keeley without even having to address their whole relationship status. Like we could have had so much more of these if we didn't have to devote all this unnecessary screen time to like Shandy and Jack. I agree. I did love that scene though. They just stare at him and he changes his answer. We know who wears the skirt in that building. The power of women. Yes, indeed. I mean, they got legendary hard man Roy Kent to just crumble on his own within seconds. That was impressive. Kind of on topic, but off topic. But did you notice Keely crying during the press conference? There were tears in her eyes, yeah. Yeah, she welled up. She was definitely moved by Roy's 
speech, as was I. I saw someone speculate that they think Keely reacted the way she did because she heard the story before, and she's glad that he's being vulnerable again and sharing with others. I don't know what you think about that theory. Oh, well, you know, it's certainly possible that she heard the story before, but that would never have occurred to me. It's probably just really hot that Roy is being vulnerable and she's probably touched. But I don't know what's in Miss Keeley Jones's head. Since we're talking about Keeley now, let's get this part that I didn't want to do out of the way. It was really painful to see her still longing for Jack. Like, I kind of thought that when she kind of stood up for herself last week and said, oh, I'm not doing the statement that she was hopefully turning a new leaf, but seemed like she was pretty down bad this week. Like Rebecca said, that was a lot of blue. That is a lot of blue, but what if, open your mind a little and come with me, what if Keely just really wanted to get the last word or even just get Jack to understand where she was coming from? And maybe that wasn't about longing for Jack so much as it was wanting to be acknowledged and or be right. I don't know. They did play it as though Keely was running after Jack, which doesn't make a lot of sense given that Jack treated her the way that Jack treated her. Jack is a wanker. Why would Keely run after that? Honestly, each week I'm just left increasingly more confused by Keely's storyline this season. Same, same. I have been questioning the Keely arc. There's definitely stuff that I've read about how you do screenwriting and how in an act two or, you know, the, the second act of any screenplay, you kind of bring in these characters that don't necessarily move the plot forward and you have them inform the story of the main protagonist even if it's not cogent to the storyline, but it influences their outlook. And if we're clocking this right, we're now in act three. And so we're carrying forward again. So I wonder if that's kind of the formula that they were adhering to. It could be. I'm still not ever going to be okay with them wasting time when all I wanted to see was people going deeper and see more of Roy and see Keeley actually building a business and doing the things and growing and developing because we could have seen so much of that with both of them. But really, I'm just, I'm also more mad about the fact that they took Phoebe away from us. When they promised her that she could still hang out with her. I know. When are we going to get the Keeley and Phoebe hangout? So all in all, I would say Roy is a good lad. He's a top chap. He's a great coach. Seeing his compassion and understanding and kindness and just accountability when he was telling the story too, he took him, you know, he made himself accountable to his teammate who he hurt. And I really, I really loved that. And I love that they brought us that, that deeper story that was a little bit more subtle that I made me love Ted Lasso in the first place. So we're seeing previous weeks how Roy's become sadistic. Yeah, he still did a super shitty thing in the story, but at least he was able to learn from it and we were able to see that. Whereas when he's talking about beating a guy with a rope or tying some strings to some dicks, not really getting that same development. I mean, you know, we could just consider it hyperbole and not anything Roy is actually serious about, too. That's the way that I've been able to make peace with those odd Roy I choose to believe that they're hyperbole and that Roy just has a little bit of a twisted sense of humor, but that those aren't things he would actually do. I mean, he still got the team to tie each other's dicks together with strings. That's very true. That was not hyperbole. In fact, he wanted to take it to another level. Multiple dicks tied together. No, that definitely wasn't hyperbole, but it was very low comedy. <laughs> definitely low. 
literally and figuratively very low. Completely unrelated note, I think most, if not all of the dissenting comments I got about that storyline were from men. I understand. Alright, time to switch over to Mr. Shelby. And no surprise at all that he was still alternating this week. He was a little bit. He definitely gave us a glimpse of insecure Nate and people-pleasing Nate because he doesn't know where he stands and he doesn't feel confident. But I do love that Jade is both a grounding element and a force of kindness in his life that seems to accept him for who he is, even with all of his insecurities. I like that. I thought it was pretty wonderful when she just saw right through Rupert's sleazy, but kind of subtle seduction act. It, it was so just, it made my skin crawl to watch it. Anthony had is so good. But when she says it's worthwhile to meet you and says that he seems wealthy, it's, it's clear she sees right through him and right through his antics. And then, of course, she also had the great line that he's nice-like, as in he knows how to make it seem like he's nice, but he's not actually nice. Yeah, it was interesting that Rupert mentioned that he was an amateur dialectician and that her sentence structured seemed to be slightly off, meaning it seemed to be informed maybe by her first language, which I'm assuming is Polish. Although we love Jade here on Ted Lasso's Life, the podcast, Critics definitely feel quite differently. So there was this one tweet from Catherine Van Arendonk, who works for Vulture, and she had a parody tweet that said, Hi, my name is Nate's girlfriend on Ted Lasso. I work at a restaurant. Before, I was mean, and now for reasons completely unspecified, I am now nice, I guess. I've also once been heard peeing. These facts are the sum total of my life. Oof, that's harsh. On one hand, I agree that we could probably get a bit more development for Jade because it seems to be mostly just kind of making sure that Nate's good side is still there and throwing some great zingers here and there. But on the other hand, I definitely agree with you, Chrisanne, that that seems very harsh. I really enjoy Jade. I feel like she brings a lot more to the role than just a one-dimensional character. I feel like she brings a lot of nuance to Jade. And I like that we're getting to see a little bit more deeply you know, behind the curtain. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying getting to know her. We know that she's reading Murakami. We know that she lives in a very cool apartment. We know that she's compassionate and decided to bring Nate lunch without being asked and just to surprise him, which I think is a testament to her character. And we know that she's just a really receptive person who I don't think is dating Nate just because he's a premier football league coach. I think that she connected to Nate based on his authenticity and vulnerability in that moment. And I like that. I think that she is a no bullshit kind of person. I think she's just a straight shooter. So after Rupert leaves and Nate's talking to Jade, he says, he's actually really decent. Do you think he actually believes that? I think that Nate believes it. And the reason why I think Nate believes it is because Nate's priorities are such that I think that he accepts certain behaviors as okay as long as he, I mean, Rupert did give him a job and he did give him this big sports car. I think that Nate is kind of letting that color his judgment of Rupert's actual character instead of actually seeing all that is kind of conditional that could be taken away and that it's nothing he can really hang his hat on. I think Nate might be missing a little bit of the mistreatment that he's already gotten at the hands of Rupert 
because of the gifts and because of the prestige that Rupert's given him. Well, I guess another part of it is kind of like association. It's like, he's my boss. He hired me. So if I work for him, he has to be decent. But as we see at Bones and Honey at the end, seems like Nate's starting to get a different opinion about Rupert. Yeah, Rupert is completely willing to sabotage Nate's new relationship. And when you think about Rupert and his less than faithful ways with his wives, I don't think Nate really realized. But I love that he did this episode. I think that Nate, you could just kind of see the realization happen. And I love that Nate got himself out of that situation. All you'd need is to have the press take a picture of him with those girls, with Rupert, to, you know, send his very new relationship past the point of no return. And that would have been really bad, even though, you know, Nate wouldn't have done anything, but it just looks bad. You know, it just doesn't look good. Probably almost certainly one of the reasons why Jay's character is catching so much flack from the critics is, of course, that she's connected to Nate and they're not seem to be loving his arc either. Not sure if it was in response to critics or fans, maybe both, but Nick Muhammad tweeted, Quickest of reminders that Ted Lasso is still a work of fiction. To those demanding I justify Nate's arc, has he done enough to redeem himself? No. Does him saying no to Rupert offer hope? Yes. But I understand why so many of you are angry. I personally remain curious. I think that was a really good way to handle the situation. And sometimes you kind of have to remind people to be curious and not judgmental. And I love that he did that. Although I, I have to say that I do rather enjoy Nate's little cocky moments when he says things like, we should play without a goalie just to give them a chance. And I hope the kit man brought 11 body bags. I like to see him being confident in ways that we don't normally see him being confident. And I want him to get his sea legs so that he can actually make those jokes, not just to placate Rupert, but just to talk shit. So after Nate bails on Rupert's guy's night and heads over to Jade's, the song that was playing when he showed up was the lyrics where I hope you find someone who loves you for all that you are. And I hope I find someone who loves me for all that I am. And then just to have them embrace for a moment was just lovely. It didn't need to be more than that. It was just simple and sweet. And the scene was just great to watch. I really enjoyed it. I loved the cinematic zoom out and the feel of the scene because as Nate feels like somebody accepts him for who he is, I feel like that insecure part of him is going to fade away and he's going to be good Nate full time and stop the wavering because he'll have more self-confidence. To your point about having someone accept him for who he is, when they showed a shot of his phone, it showed uh, that they sent voice messages to each other. And of course, perfect for Jade, hers was five seconds long. Nate's was two and a half minutes on the dot. So if he is someone who can listen to a two and a half minute voice note, she might be a keeper. Yeah, definitely a keeper. I relate to that so much. Clearly, because you often go on two and a half minute monologues like nothing. <laughs> it's true. I'm loquacious like Ted. And apparently Nate to his girlfriend. Exactly. A quick piece of housekeeping before I move on. We're thankful for all our listeners and super grateful for everyone who's left a rating or a review. One thing that I found interesting is that for not just one, but two weeks in a row, our Spotify rating has kept dropping. So it's got to make me wonder, like, is that platform getting a different version of our show or something? 
But what I will say is, if you don't think we deserve that five-star review at the moment, maybe hold back on hitting that negative rating and give us your feedback. Because like Jamie said, if you can make us better, we want to hear it. Thanks. And now for our favorite part of the podcast, the awards. Chris Ann and I are both huge Ted Lasso fans, and we're nice people, so each week we give awards in a variety of fun categories. First up, MVP. MVP! MVP! This was a neck and neck race for me this week, Kevin. I have to say, it was a tough choice, but I'm giving it this week to one Ms. Rebecca Welton for squaring off with Roy and setting him straight, which led to a domino effect in the episode. And helped him kind of get his head right. She's so right and powerful about things that I love it when she gives her assessment of what's happening in a situation or a scene. Because you know it's always going to be right on. And let's be frank, Roy really needed to have a fire lit underneath his butt. His non-hairy ass. And I think she did that. For the love of God, Chrisanne, please stop stealing my lines. I was waiting the whole time to finish with that kicker of a punchline. But no, you took it. I'm such a jerk. Oh my God, you're never going to forgive me. As for you not forgiving me, giving another group award this time, although I agree with your pick of Rebecca Welton, I would also say that the AFC Richmond Greyhounds team also deserves MVP for the way they handled Collins coming out. You kind of knew that they were going to be completely and 100% accepting because of who they are and who they become as a team. But I'm glad to see that they addressed it and they addressed the nuances of that as well. And now for the other end of the spectrum, the wanker of the week. Let's see what we got here. Wanker. Is there any question as to who the biggest wanker on the show is? It's, you know, Rupert. It's turtleneck Lucifer himself. I'm cribbing that from from the New York Times writer, Chris Orr, because I thought it was so brilliant. Turtleneck Lucifer. He was so creepy when he was sitting behind Nate too this week, just watching him. So as I kind of did last week for Jack, let's list all the ways Rupert was a wanker. Telling Nate in front of his fucking face that his girlfriend would probably be out of his league if he's not a Premier League manager. Telling him not to screw it up, when then, at the end, trying to screw it up for him with the honeys at Bones and Honey. Stealing the man's baklava without even asking him. And putting his fingers in it too, just sticking his grubby mitts right in there. We don't know where those hands have been. I also really hated that he misnamed Jade later in the episode and called her Kate. When somebody forgets somebody's name or intentionally calls them by a different name, I think it's just the rudest thing you can do. And of course, the honeys at Bones and Honey, he mixed up their names too. He totally did. Our next award celebrates proficiency in profanity, excellence in expletives, virtuosity in vulgarities. It's the Roy Kent Cussing Award. Fun. That's fun, isn't it? This week, the rules are getting bent a little bit, like Keely's heart, because my award this week doesn't actually involve any words. I'm awarding to when Jamie asks Sam for the captain's armband, and he at first playfully made it seem like he was going to give it to him, but then instead rolled up a middle finger at him. That was really good. I loved that between them. I love the business between Sam and Jamie now. It's so, it's just fun. It's always fun and funny. My award, I think, is going to Isaac, making old Roy Kent look like Bambi. 
I love that he's loyal and I love that he's always going to go to bat for his people. And he really just, he blew everybody's ears off with all of his F-bombs. So it goes to one Mr. Isaac McAdoo for me this week. Now for the You're Gonna Make Me Cry Award, what was a really emotional moment for you? Ooh, I had a few actually. And you know I love to cry at Ted Lasso, but I think it was Isaac and Colin's conversation at the end mixed with the beautiful lyrics and then the lyrics for I Am What I Am from La Cage It was just a lovely combination of so many elements that was beautiful to see. And my eyes welled right up. And not for nothing, our producer Cam actually filmed herself watching the episode and she cried like a baby too. But I thought it was, it was really fun to see people's reaction to the show. It was really nice to see her reaction to the show. The I've always funnier than Step Brothers. The ward. I'm gonna say Beard's press room argument about the transatlantic battle for the best classic rock guitarist of all time. And I love that they went there and that Beard called out Stairway to Heaven just being a fingering exercise because he's such a snob. The whole episode was very funny to me though. It felt very much back in its rhythm and very much back in its comedic roots for me. I felt like I had more laugh out loud moments this episode, which delighted me. How about you, Kevin? Well, before we get to my award, who do you think is the best classic rock guitarist of all time? I'm going to say Brian May. He wasn't even on the menu during the episode, but I'm gaga for some Brian May. I think he is amazing and such a menchy guy, too. He's such a good person. For me, I gotta go with Slash from Guns N' Roses. He is such a signature sound and some of the most iconic solos of all time. But can he really shoehorn him into classic rock? Isn't he a little bit more modern than classic rock, Kevin? I mean, I, I don't disagree with your award, but the timing. Because I knew you'd probably complain. I checked Wikipedia before I said that, all right. All right, all right, I'll allow it. I think it's because so much time has elapsed that they have become classic. I'll remain curious and not judgmental. I don't know if it was the funniest thing in the world, but like I think it was just so unexpected when Colin went into the coach's office and Colin goes to Trent, Isaac knows, but Trent responds with that Ted's son is failing science. Scandal. Pitch perfect Trent Krim answer. Very funny, that scene. That scene was very satisfying. Trent's got bars. Again, breaking my one winner per award per person rule, but you mentioned the word bar, so had to jump in. Ted's country rap, bars or cringe? For me, it was a little cringe. The first one, I'm heart bent in my apartment. I was ready for something really great. And then he went into the fart category for me. And that's when I cringed. I totally agree. That first line was a bar, but that second line kind of stunk it up. <laughs> I did. If you're into internet culture, there's a meme that goes, had us in the first half, not going to lie. Felt exactly like that right there. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if he improvised that the day of the shoot or if that was scripted. Fun fact. I say this in air quotes that you can't see, but first episode of the season where they're surrounded by Pupe and then right here talking about the fart scent, Jason Sudeikis in real life actually cannot smell, so... Very lucky for any of his spouses or girlfriends because you could just let him rip and not have to worry about it. <laughs> and now for the award that's all about fashion. She's fucking 
fucking sick! This week it goes to Keely Jones. I am obsessed with her Pepperland Peggy cardigan from the House of Sunny. That geometric print with the fur cuffs and the fur stole. Love it. Want it. I've been stocking it online and it will be mine. It will be mine. I also still love Trent Crim's t-shirt game. It's really on fire. And last but not least, since I'm a writer and I love Ted Lasso, it's Kevin's kick-ass line of the week. And for probably the most poetic pick I've had so far goes to Arlo White. He said that the denizens of the dog track have seen their greyhounds race up the table as of late. So first, it was a great way to catch the audience up on how Richmond's been doing since, of course, I can't show us every single match. We had alliteration with denizens and dog track, and we had a metaphor with greyhounds racing up the table. So just top-notch all around. I also loved some of the banter between Arlo and Chris this week, especially when he called <laughs> Chris out for correcting him on the air. I thought that was really funny. I love those guys. I did find a really fun runner kick this week. I was reading some of the comments sections under the New York Times review and a very astute and observant fan, Jeffrey Schwartzschild from New Jersey, wrote about there being an Easter egg. And if you were ever a fan of Cheers, and for those of you who don't know, George Went is Jason Sudeikis's uncle. They added a picture of Geronimo in the Richmond pub in the, in the Crown and Anchor. And it was just kind of briefly towards the end of the episode. And that had to be a tribute to Coach in Cheers because the same picture was hung there after Coach passed away in the Cheers bar. And it was really just sweetly adjusted by Sam at the end of the final episode. So that was a nice little layered in Easter egg for people to see. And I love when they do that. It just makes my heart so happy. So thanks for that. Makes your heart sing too. It makes my heart sing. Yeah. So thanks for that, Jeffrey Schwartzchild. Now we're into added time. The final whistle is about to blow on this episode. So we're hitting you with some final shots of some noteworthy moments from this episode. You know, what's funny is that I learned there's a little bit of trivia that Joe Walsh and Jimmy Page were actually friends. They weren't rivals at all. They were buddies. In fact, Joe Walsh sold Jimmy his 1959 Gibson Les Paul with the famous sunburst. And he used that a lot in Led Zeppelin. I like that they referenced Led Zeppelin a lot. Jimmy Page, Jimmy Paper. I was going to say, we got a rule of three. Well... This episode was the third, and you just mentioned the second. And the first was when they had Phoebe listening to it in season one. Yeah, she actually talked about cream, too. Or actually, Keely said, wait till you hear cream. On a related note, Higgins' reaction to Rebecca coming out of the press conference was classic. The guy from cream! Higgins was actually pretty funny this episode. They did some funny bits throughout. When he texted Rebecca, though, he was sitting right next to her. And when he made that terrible joke in the locker room, read the room, Leslie. Well, I think his best bit from the whole episode was when they kick Beard out and then Beard's actually trying to get back in and he's like trying to cover the window with his hands. Great physical comedy, Jeremy Swift. Mm-hmm. 100%. Speaking of 100%, I will take it to the grave that Coke tastes better in a glass bottle. And I'm bringing this up because you remember at the Crown and Anchor, they ran out of pint glasses. So May had to give them their beer in champagne flutes. And Paul marked, I think this tastes better. Yeah, no, I agree. I especially love Mexican Coke. 
in a glass bottle. It's delicious. So during the match, there was a part where Arlo says, Van Damme's been a commanding presence, Chris. To which Chris said, just like in the movie Time Cop. To which Mojerty Lamour, who plays Thierry Zero slash Van Damme, posted on his Instagram story that Time Cop was in fact his favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. As for someone who seems like the opposite of fun, seems like Roger's whole bit is somebody in trouble. Because like last week when he got summoned to the Diamond Dog, sorry, the Love Hounds, his first reaction was, are we in trouble? And then when it didn't go well and Nate said it's never happening again, he says, now are we in trouble? And then this episode, when Nate tells him that he's going for a guy's night out with Rupert, he then asks, are you in trouble? Yeah, I'd say that Roger has some serious issues with authority. You know what else I noticed is it seems like Keely has been wearing the same pair of pink platform shoes. I don't know if she's been wearing them the whole season, but it seems like she has. Well, I feel like for women, it's probably a bit different. But for me as a guy, I have one pair of shoes that I wear like almost all the time. So, yeah, I'm I'm not that way at all. <laughs> Even with my comfortable shoes, I have several pairs that I switch back and forth out of. But Keely being such a fat, you know, a clothes horse and a, a little fashionista, I was surprised that we had seen the pink shoes so much. They're very, very cute, but it seems like they're always on her feet. So as I mentioned early in the episode, it was really cool how Colin Isaac had that conversation over video games and they're playing FIFA. And I was hoping that they were playing as Richmond, but I guess maybe it's possible that they recorded before the most recent version of FIFA came out with Richmond in it. Yeah, that must have been what happened for sure. For me, I'm just happy that Colin and Isaac are back on track and they're buddies again. I was very glad. I feel like we're heading into the next three episodes on a, on a really good note. And I'm feeling hopeful and anticipating them wrapping up some of these storylines and unfolding more for us. And hopefully they'll give us three hours as opposed to shorter episodes. I debated using this for Kevin's kick-ass line of the week, but kind of long, so technically not one line. So I'll share it now. On the whiteboard in the locker room at halftime, it has notes about, I guess, their strategy for the, for the match. And it says, Today, Brighton. Attack begins in defense. Defense begins in attack. Trust your instincts. Trust your teammates. Let your football be total. I didn't notice that. I'm going to go and check it out so I can see it because that is super clever. Thanks for the heads up on that, Kev. Speaking of Brighton, Ted had a great line when he said, Brighton, Hove, and Albion. I didn't know we were playing a law firm. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. That was funny. Lots of good comedy this, this episode. And then to end off with another Ted line, I thought something he said that was almost kind of a throwaway, but could actually be pretty poignant if you look at it. He said, ain't nothing to it but to do it. For people who have anxiety, it can be crippling just thinking about doing something that is seems like really difficult or challenging. But then oftentimes when you do it, you realize it's not that bad. So I think that's a pretty good mantra to live by. It really is. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we greatly appreciate it if you could be like Ted and give us a five-star certified fresh review. It's the easiest and free way to support us. And for more of my content, follow me on Instagram at Ted Lasso is Life. I'm the most comprehensive Ted Lasso page out there with videos, news, fun facts, analysis, and of course, memes. Until next time, Greyhounds, onward, forward. <laughs>